This is the Almost Awakened Podcast, a no-nonsense approach to spirituality with your hosts, Brittany Hartley and Bill Reel. Here we dive deep into the wisdom traditions while acknowledging insightful breakthroughs in science, psychology, and human development. Our goal is to explore the good life and the very best of spirituality, no nonsense required. Check us out at almostawaken.org, where you can check out past episodes, make a donation, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources we shared. And now, today's podcast episode. Brittany, how are you? Good. How are you, Bill? Excellent. Excellent. You know, I've always known you as Brittany. Do you want me to call you Britt? Yeah, I usually go. I I like Brit. We'll do I that. Kind of a, I was kind of a tomboy when I was growing up, so I usually go by by Brit. Gotcha. Well, uh, we are doing a part two today, aren't we? Really excited. We had such great audience um, feedback and questions from our first one last week. We talked about Bart Campolo, and uh, we we kind of focused on deconstruction last week and there's similarities between, you know, his story and our story, but there's also yeah. some differences. He comes from a different faith tradition than ours. And so we yeah. got to explore that a little bit. And we're so honored that he agreed to do a part two because we were just not done with picking his brain yet. Yeah. So here he is. Bart, is. How are you? I'm good. Hi, everybody. Excellent. Excellent. So, hey, Bill. Yeah. yeah, please. Do you? Do you and Britt not know each other well enough that you even know what she likes to be called? So here's the thing. I started out <laughs> podcasting about a decade ago, and I've built kind of a brand on my own that has to do with Mormonism. And Britt was one of, if not, the very first person kind of following along. And uh, she was listening when almost no one else was. And over the years, we built a friendship, but I've always called her by her formal name, Bart. So um, and I call her Brit once in a while when I'm kind of being informal, but I don't know if she's never told me what she wants to be called in the public arena. And so we're yeah. working this out in real time. I'm glad we, I'm glad we could have this breakthrough. Today. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. Yes. So from here on out, it'll just you be know, it's funny. I don't know. I don't know if you ever like this, but sometimes with people that you meet, like, like Bill, we're talking about our faith journeys and just really deep stuff that you almost skipped all of the yeah. like surface level like what do you like to be called I don't and care your family how kids and doing, where do you, you know come I mean? from and yeah we kind of skipped <laughs> some of that some of that stuff yeah. you know when you go right into you know talking about faith journey stuff you can go really deep really fast with people and then you realize I don't know what you want to <laughs> call you but I've known her for a decade so I consider yeah. her a good friend um, but yeah, our conversations have always been about what's hurting what the trauma is and and not really like hey how's the weather and you know, what's your kids' names? So, cool. yeah. Yeah. Um, your thoughts, Britt, on starting us off? Yeah. So I wanted to start with, um, we, we had a couple of questions. We had quite a few questions that came as we were talking last week, Bart. So I think we're just going to start with some of our viewer questions. Okay. And then move into maybe some questions that, that Bill and I still had as we're, as we're still picking your brain about how to do this post-religious thing that we're trying to all figure out. Yeah. Um, and so we kind of summarized the questions into to a couple, and Bill Bill was the one who was doing that. So Bill, I'll have you go into the questions that we got from the viewers, and if Bart, if that's okay, we'll start there with you. Yeah, yeah and I think this is I, I think this will be pretty easy to address. So there were three thoughts last week from three different people, and I think they're all interconnected. One person said, "Why do we need a story to be good, though?" Another person said, 
why are we humans collecting into tribes and for what reason? And the third one was, does everyone need a secular religion? I don't feel like I do, but that's why I'm here. I have space for curiosity. And I want to set it up, uh, Bart, by saying, I think last week you had mentioned Sapiens. Uh, I know I did. And I don't know if that's a book you read. I think it was you that mentioned it to begin with. Have you read Yuval Harari and Sapiens? Oh, yeah. Okay. So just to the audience, people are basically asking, like, why do we need a secular tribe and why do we need stories? And Yuval Harari in Sapiens makes the argument that human beings do really well with intimacy on small groups. And then at some point, humans invented language and we come up with gossip. And gossip is the binding mechanism in a group, say, of 25 to 150, right? And then uh, Yuval Harari says the next thing humans do is they invent story or myth. And that myth allows you to not know someone at all. You can be on a battlefield with someone with the same uniform and you know that the other guy with the same uniform is us and the other guy with different uniform across the field is them. And so it allows us to work together and it allows us to collaborate. It allows us to identify with allegiance by having a common story of us and them. And there's unhealthy aspects to that too. So that's my background for why that's important, but I want to get your thoughts as several listeners are kind of pointing to that idea of, of story and community and um, tribalism, your thoughts on maybe why we need that, even if we're going to be a humanist. Yeah. I mean, it's a great question. And I know that you guys and your listeners that, that in some ways, you know, as you're trying to figure out like, how do you make the most of this life? You're pretty open about like, you know, we try to draw on science. Yeah. And, and so when you, you know, you're pulling Yuval Harari and what's interesting is the book I'm reading right now is a new book that was just put out by two anthropologists. Um, uh, gosh, and, and their names are going to, oh, okay. It's David Graver, Graber and David Wengro. And their book is called The Dawn of Everything. And it is a complete challenge to Yuval Harari. And in fact, to all of modern anthropology in terms of, Harari and, and these, they all, it's like an, the evolution of societies. And we start out as egalitarian hunter-gatherer tr tribes, right? And then we gradually get, start farming and that enables us to create cities and larger conglomerations of people. And then we need hierarchy and governments and, you know, and private property and all the, you know, and it's a very, you know, very familiar. Like if, if you hang around with the humanist types, you know, there's this like, this is where we came from. And um, Harari does a great job. I, I remember one of my favorite parts of his book was talking about how wheat had colonized our lives. Mm. Like, wheat wins. Like yeah. we think that we cultivate wheat, but wheat has really used us to dominate the world mm. um, as a life form. And, um, but, but, but that, whole, but these guys, the, 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 the dawn of everything guys are sort of like, you know what, throughout history, there were lots of different political conglomerations and many tribes were like yeah that hierarchy stuff we hate it and so they experimented with it and then ran away from it and they sort of they're anarchists not like not that they want like no order but they just don't believe governments are necessary for people to order themselves and to avoid conflict and to communicate and all these things so so anyway my mind is all like Blah, you know, exploding life, like, oh my gosh, everything I thought might be wrong, but, mm. and I'm not yet persuaded, don't get me wrong, but, um, but I'm intrigued. 
Mm. But but what's interesting is, is that what what the what the Yuval Harari gang would say is stories emerge to control people, stories emerge to organize people, stories emerge to justify hierarchies. But I think what the archaeological record would demonstrate, and what my gut instinct is, is that people always tell stories. You know, I, we tell stories to our kids. We tell stories to each other. There are cave paintings of people saying, like, this is what happened to me. Or this is how, it, you know, that, that, that I think that stories are almost always a natural response to ignorance. Whenever you don't know what happened, you postulate a possible story. Like, in a sense, the scientific method, hypotheses are stories. Maybe it was this way. This might be the story behind why that lightning is firing off in the sky. And, you know, and, and the scientific method is like, let's figure out which story, which explanation is better. You know, they're never final. There, there always might be another, there might be an explanation that wipes out your explanation. And then we just have to change our minds. Um, and so I think that stories are how we make sense of things or how we, how we, cope with ignorance which is another way of saying how we cope with mortality like our limited brains our mm. limited experiences our limited knowledge and so like i think like if you go like why do we need a story i would sort of say to the person that asked that question like because we don't know everything because it's uncomfortable being ignorant because mm. we're trying to figure things out and so mm -hmm. You know, um, I mean, we even do that in our own lives. You know, I, I forget. I think it was Jonathan Haidt who said, we're not rational creatures. We're rationalizing creatures. We actually make decisions based on gut instinct. And then we come up with intellectual stories about why we did it. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, that's not really why we did it. That It's sort of like the, the elephant decides where we're going. And the rider then says, well, I came here for this reason. Um, you know, because we're, we, we just... We, we, we're, we're prone to want to make sense of things. And so like, that would be my sense of, you know, why we need stories in general. And you say, well, why do you need a story, Bart, the way you were describing it last week, of how the whole world works, like a big history, like a Yuval Harari history or this alternative history. Like, why are you always trying to figure out like how it all worked and then how your little life fits into that? And I, and, and I think it's because... I'm uncomfortable with my own mortality. Um, and what makes me more comfortable with my mortality is, is if I sense that my little life is somehow connected to or part of a bigger picture that gives it a greater degree of meaning. So it's my hunt for meaning. And you say, well, then, what that would mean is, is that people that had less of an interest in feeling like they were significant would maybe be able to just sit and watch TV and not need a story of why that's important to them or why that's natural or why that's a good thing. And I, go, I think that's true. And I, I think in, in all of our lives, we probably know people who, who have less of an appetite for a big picture story and other people that have more of an appetite for a big picture story. One of the things I would say for your, for your audience is, is that 
the more you grow up in a big picture culture that's always talking about the big picture, I think it builds in people an appetite. It builds in them a dependency or, 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 or like, like a sort of a, an addiction to a big picture. And so a lot of times people, when they, when they come out of that culture, they need, it's like when you come off heroin, you need that methadone. Like mm. you need a benign story, but you need something to replace that sense of I'm part of something hugely mm-hmm. important. Well, when we talked about that a little bit last week of, you know, the stamp of God and fundamentalism and all this, that stamp stays on way past, you know, your deconstruction. It's almost like, you know, me being raised Mormon, there's this scaffolding of you can find the truth and you can find ultimate reality. And long after I had, you know, transitioned from Mormonism, I was still doing that process and I was still looking for a kind of profit, but a new profit because that stamp was still there. Right. And then you realize, Oh, I'm treating these Buddhist, you know, writers as if they're a new profit for this new big story. And we realize we're kind of doing the same thing before. But for me, story is, is less about for me, for my own growth, I had to kind of let that go. And I've been able to shift away from that scaffolding that kind of built me. Um, that's been part of my own story. But I think for me, what stories do now is there's kind of no, when you're talking about human nature, the mapping of human nature is is kind of just, we do that through story. You know what I mean? There's, it's really hard to map out what resonates and why humans do what we do. And we have these conflicting things and all this going on in our brain and stories are how we kind of map what it means to be human. So that's still kind of what story does for me. If if we were just, if I was just going to go about your own human nature, like on some level, I'd be like, so what are your values? Like, which, and values, by the way, are just preferences. Like, what do you, Mm -hmm. what do you want more than you want the other thing? What are you willing to pay more for and less for? Oh, I value this more highly than that. So if I go like, Britt, what do you care about? You're like, oh, my kids, or I care about art, or I care about like, you know, food or whatever your things are, right? Security. The next question I would ask would always be like, why do you care about those things? Where did those values come from? So in a sense, like you tell me what your nature is. And my first question is, how did that get there? Mm -hmm. What's the story behind that desire? Like, oh, you want security. Tell me how you grew up. And you're like, oh, well, we moved, you know, my father never had work and my mother was, you know, a drug addict and we never had any security. And all I, I said to myself, man, I just want to have a place where I know I'm going to live in the same apartment from year to year. And you go, oh, I see. That value is rooted in insecurity. Or we always had security and I loved it so much and I wanted to live. I, my, my, my mother was my hero and I wanted to be just like her. Like, there are different stories that can lead you to the same value, but almost everybody... Like in a sense, like our desires, our values, they come from somewhere. And it's the same with like our instinct, like why do all cultures hate snakes? You're like, well, anthropologists will tell you a story. Mm-hmm. And it's a different story than the story that Judeo-Christian culture teaches. But like in a sense, like they are competing stories because like, you're, again, it's just like you go like, I don't need a huge religious narrative. I just want to know why I like, you know, why I like wide open spaces and you're like okay well there's a story behind that too mm-hmm. we're, well, we're and about, then to, go ahead i was gonna say we're about to navigate kind of into what humanism is and 
what it means to be a humanist. And you're talking about values, and I've got a question around values. But before I ask that, I wanted to ask you if you would define, again, I think we could all go look up the textbook definition. I've done that. I know Britt's done that. Um, we're aware of what those are. But for the listener, maybe who's, or the watcher, the viewers who's looking right now and doesn't know, how do you define humanism? How do you define, if someone says, I'm a humanist, what does that mean to you? I mean, that's such an interesting question, Brett. I mean, Bill, because when I first left Christianity, I was trying to figure out, like, what the heck do I call myself now? And it was really hard because, like, I didn't like any of the words. Like, they were like atheist. And I'm like, I don't want to call myself an atheist. In, in this culture, atheism tends to mean you're anti-Christian or you're anti-Mormon or you're anti any kind of organized religion. I'm like, I'm not, I'm not hostile towards these people. You know, like, I don't want to destroy everybody's faith. So I was like, I don't want to be perceived as like a jerk. So I don't want to call myself an atheist because most of the organized atheists or the, 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 the well-known atheists are kind of known as like slash and burn people. So I was like, well, then call yourself agnostic. And I was like, yeah, yeah. And technically I am agnostic because I can't prove anything. Like I can't prove that there is no God. You know, maybe God is hiding on the other side of Jupiter in like, you know, in, a, in an old lunchbox. I, 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 you know, I mean, it's unlikely, but I can't prove that it's not true. So I am agnostic about everything. But the problem is agnostic in our language tends to mean like, I don't know, or like I'm confused or I'm uncertain. Or it means like I haven't really, I don't really care to think about it. Yeah, and yeah. like, you've thought a lot about it. So yeah. that doesn't really fit. I don't want to call myself agnostic because like, yes, we have come to some fairly clear conclusions about what I think about yes. like what I think is likely and what I'm willing to base. I mean, I'm agnostic about whether or not Michael Jackson has deposited a million dollars in my name in a Swiss bank account. Like, I don't know that he didn't do that. Like, I can't prove that Michael Jackson didn't do that. There are Swiss bank accounts. Like, there might be one with my name on it. They're, they would never reveal it. Like, but what I can tell you is like, I've decided that that's such an unlikely possibility that I don't make any life decisions based on being a millionaire. What's well, the same way about God with me? Like, I, I can't prove that there is no God, but like, I've clearly decided I'm going to live my life as if there is no God and as if this is all we get. So like, yeah, agnostic. I'm not going there. You're like, well, then call yourself a free thinker. And you're like, well, like, first of all, this isn't the 1800s. And um, secondly, the idea of being a free thinker, like I know way too much about cognitive biases and, um, and my own, my own in insecurities and stuff like that. Like, like, I wish I was a free thinker, but my thoughts are actually quite constrained. There's all sorts of things I can't think for all sorts of reasons or, or that I think in the wrong way. So you're like, yeah, I'm not a free thinker. And you're like, well then call yourself, uh, you know, a skeptic. And I go like, again, like, what does that tell you? And so, and so in the end, I ended up deciding to call myself a humanist precisely, Bill, because nobody knows what that means. <laughs> And so it was a word that I felt like it's, it's sort of like Christianity. We're like, you know, what does Christianity mean? Like I, I knew 57 different varieties of, of Christian. Like they had not very little in common with each other. Like anyone can define that word any way they want to. And for me, what, what I realized, like I would go on a college campus and I would say to kids like, are you a humanist? And they would go like, what's a humanist? And I would go like, oh, that's great. You don't have a working definition. So I'll give you mine. So what, you know, so what happened was at USC, the, the, and, and what's funny is like, I now not even, I don't even like the word humanize, humanist anymore. I like to call myself a humanizer. 
like, you know, cause like I'm trying to become more human, but like on some level it means I'm loyal to the human experience. And for me, that means I'm not only, I'm loyal to the experience of being finite. I'm loyal to the experience of being mortal and knowing I'm going to die. Like, like there's something about the human experience that I value. If I was a cockroach, I would be a cockroachist. But like I'm loyal to my friends and my family and like among the living things, if I have to choose between me and a cockroach I'm or my daughter and a cockroach, I'm choosing my daughter because she's closer to me. So like, first of all, it's just an act of loyalty. Like I'm loyal to my species. But for me, what it means to be a humanist is that I'm fairly convinced that this life is the only one that there is. Like I'm a secular humanist. Like I don't believe in any kind of, you know, spiritual, you know, metaphysical reality out there. So like on one level I go like, okay, I'm secular, but I've done enough science and enough, and enough observation to believe that like, I think the thing that makes the human experience the best, the humans I know that live the longest and that enjoy their lives the most are those that are committed to building a handful of loving relationships and who are committed to making things better for other people and who are committed to cultivating gratitude and wonder and interest and curiosity about the world around them. And so for me, I go like, oh, if those are the things that cause human beings to thrive and my ultimate commitment is to causing other is, is to thrive and to help other human beings thrive, then I'm committed to those things. Like, and so in a sense, for me to be a humanist is somebody who says like, you know, I know enough science to know that these are the things that kind of cause human beings to thrive in general. And I'm committed to proactively pursuing them because I want to, I want to thrive and I want to help other people thrive because helping other people thrive is a part of what helps me thrive. And so it's just a, like a sort of a recognition, like, oh, this is how human beings work. I like human beings. I want to, I want to commit myself to the process. And so my other friends in my community you know, they basically look at each other and go like, look, I, you know, I want to pursue these values. And they're like, yeah, I want to pursue these values too. I want to, I want to cultivate, I want to learn how to use science to build better relationships and to make things better for other people and to have more of a sense of appreciation and wonder. And I go like, me too. And they go, me too, me too. And then we go like, you know, there's something we've learned. And that is no matter how good your values are, most of us don't live up to them. I mean, I believe in exercise, but I don't exercise. I believe in veganism, but I, you know, I still eat stuff I shouldn't eat. So you're like, but what I've learned is that human beings have a tendency to live up to their values better when they band together with other people that share those values and they reinforce the values to each other and, 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 and they support each other in pursuing those values. And so you're like, oh, so like, let's help each other become more human. And so for me, a humanist is not somebody who just believes in those values. Because like most of the people I meet, if I go like, hey, you know, what do you want? You want to have some loving relationships? You want to, yeah, 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 yeah. Everybody, you know, nobody's going to disagree with that stuff. I go like, are you willing to, are you, are, are you in any way actively, proactively pursuing those values? And if they go, yeah, I go, ah, then you're, then you're my kind of humanist. That's because to be a humanist is not just to hold those values, but to be, to be actively pursuing them. So tell us, this would be a great segue to tell us, tell us kind of as if nobody has ever heard of this. Tell, of us, tell us about Caravan and how it started and how it's going and what you've learned along the way. 
because um, there's a lot of people who are trying to kind of are in this space. Like these are my values. I want to find some friends. I want to get some try. I want to get some momentum behind uh, what you're saying. So, so talk to us about caravan and how, and how that's going. And in the process, I will answer the last two questions because the one person says, why tribes? And the other person says, does everyone need one? Does everyone need a secular narrative and tribe? So, so I'll tell you what happened to me is so I'm out in California. So, so like long story short, I become a secular person. I try to figure out like, how am I going to make sense of my life on the other side? I read a bunch of Robert Ingersoll from the 1890s. I get all turned on to this idea of, okay, there's a secular story that I can tell. There's a secular gospel, if you will, that basically says, hey, these are the things that cause us to thrive. And love is at the center of them. So let's pursue love in a kind of a, a very proactive way. I'm all excited. And, uh, and I start going to secular groups to try to see where I can meet all the other people that want to pursue these things. So I go to the atheist clubs and I go to the you know, skeptics clubs. And they are just deadly, man. These people just, they just want to sit around and talk about how smart they are and how much, how dumb the Christians are and just make fun of Christians and Mormons. And I just like, you know, they have, those are my friends. I don't want to make fun of them. And so, uh, so I can't figure out like, what am I going to do? And I end up, a friend of mine gives me this book by Greg Epstein, who's the secular humanist chaplain at Harvard. And he's written a book called Good Without God. And it's kind of like, and he describes this group he has at Harvard, this secular humanist community there so I'm, I'm i read it and I, that's what i'm looking at so i jump on a plane i fly to boston and i spend a weekend at harvard just like hanging around with this group and i call greg and say hey can i come visit you he's like sure so i come talk and like we go to lunch and stuff like that and as i'm watching this group it looks like every mormon youth group you ever saw every christian youth group i ever was in a bunch of nice kids coming in, they're hugging each other and they're swapping books that they've been reading and they're going on a mission trip somewhere to help some orphanage. And they're talking about how they can reach out to this kid. One of their kids is really sad because his parents, you know, got in a car accident there. How do we support him? And I'm like, this is like every youth group I've ever been part of. And so I thought like, oh my gosh, I know how to do this. And I said to Greg, like, is this it? He's like, yeah. He said, you could do this. Like, you know, you're a youth worker. You know a lot about working with young people. So I think, oh, okay. So it's just building a loving community, except around a different narrative. Just a narrative that it makes sense to love each other. Like, it just works. So I end up going out to USC. Because Greg says, look, the, the USC has this direct dean of religious life. He's looking for a humanist chaplain. He can't find anybody. So I go out. I say, I'll be your humanist chaplain. He says, come on out. So I go out. I, I figure out that it's a volunteer job, that they don't pay you. They give you a really nice business card, though. And... Uh, and I become the humanist chaplain. I think I'll be able to raise a lot of money because I was always able to raise money for whatever good work I was doing in Christianity. It turns out that in the secular world, there is not a bloodthirsty God who will kill you if you don't give 10% of your income. And so it was much harder to raise money. And I could never figure out how to do that. But for the three years that I was there, it was really easy to build a community of loving kids. I just said, I went to their five-person atheist club and said, listen, if you want to spend the rest of your life making fun of Christians, you could do that. I said, or I could teach you how to build a loving community that would draw all sorts of people. Um, and, and we would pursue living better lives on the basis of science and reason. And they were like, that sounds like a lot of fun. So I was like, oh, let's try it. So we reach out to the campus. And, and like our big recruiting thing was we would set up a table in the middle of the campus with a sign on it that says, are you a humanist? And kid would walk by and say, 
what's a humanist? And we would say, well, you know, for us, it's like this. And people go like, yeah, I like all those values. And we're like, oh, then you should come have dinner with us. And so we would have a weekly dinner and all these nice kids would come who identify with these values. And then we would like do, we would talk about some article that we had read in a science journal about listening skills and how listening pro promoted different kinds of relationships. And they were like, well, I'm going to do that. And, you know, and the whole group sort of formed up, like, how do we become more loving people? And it was the nicest group on campus. And so then those kids were bringing their friends and pretty soon, like I get written up in the New York times um, as like doing this like bold new experiment. Like it's as old as dirt. Like you get a bunch of kids together and you teach them how to love each other and everybody's happy. So as I'm doing that and I get written up in the New York Times and all stuff, a friend of mine comes to me and says, listen, you're getting a lot of emails. You can't answer them all. Why don't you start a podcast where you can talk about all this loving stuff, love, a secular approach to building loving relationships. So I started this podcast, Humanize Me, which you guys have heard. And, uh, and I get all these listeners. So eventually my wife gets sick of being in L.A. So she says, look, move back to I want to go back to Cincinnati. So I moved back to Cincinnati. I start getting all these emails from people like, I live in Cincinnati. I heard you talking about that group at USC. Could you start like that, something like that here, except not for college kids, just for our families? Because like, we miss it. We miss church. We miss being a part of a community like that. So I started, you know, I, I called some of those people back and I said like, yeah, you know, you want to, and they were like, yeah. So I, I, so I rented out a place and we started having dinner parties. At first it was like five people, then it was 20 people, and it's like 35 or 40 people, and they all started to come. And we, we would eat dinner together. And it was really cool for a minute. But then what happened was is that if you sat next to the wrong person at dinner, it was a really long night. You know, whenever you start to offer fellowship for people that are lonely, you get a lot of socially awkward people that are going to show up. And I love awkward people, but like I can't sit next to all of them. And when they sit next to each other, it doesn't work that well. And so the really cool people that would come that were socially like apt and that had friends of their own, they were like, listen, you know, like I already have a group of friends. I don't, I'm not here to make friends. I'm here to like sort of pursue, like, what does it mean to be a humanist? And they're like, this is, it's nice, but like, no. So then what we did was we stopped having dinners and we started, me and a couple of my friends, we started planning an hour-long service where you could, all those socially awkward people could come and all the other people could come and they would all sit next to each other. But like nobody had, you didn't have to talk. It was like being at a concert. Like you could talk before and talk afterwards, but there wasn't pressure, right? And you say, well, what did you do? Uh, you know, somebody would get up and they would do a guided meditation, like a mindfulness exercise. And we would all sit and do the mindfulness exercise. People were like, that was cool. I feel more, you know, I feel more grounded. And then somebody else would get up and read some beautiful poem or, or, or a passage from a, from a great scientist or from a, you know, something that was inspiring about an aspect of loving kindness or an, an aspect of gratitude or an aspect of making things better for other people. And then, you know, somebody would play a song that was in the same theme and people go, oh, that's inspiring. And then I would get up and give like a 10 minute, 15 minute, like Ted-ish kind of talk about some way in which, you know, our values could be lived out, our, our, our collective values could be lived out. And it just turned into a thing where like, and then, you know, people would get up and share, this is what's going on in my life. And people, you know, and people would listen and care. And, and, and so it was like this facilitated experience. And people said, this is great. I look forward to this. 
I'm making connections. I'm meeting people that share my values. I don't feel so alone in the world. My kids are meeting other people that are saying the same things that we say at home about sharing and about kindness and about goodness, but there's no like fear of hell, God overlay on it. And so that it, it kind of just grew up into that kind of a fellowship. And then COVID hit and we had to shut the whole sucker down and we're, we're trying to, we're, we're just, we're just restarting it now. Um, but, but, but you say, well, during COVID, why didn't you just go virtual? And you're like, the whole freaking point of the thing was, is that all these people that spend all their time on podcasts and, and chat rooms and stuff like that were like, I want to be in a room, right? I want to feel the blood. I want to know that there are people in my own community that share my values and that I can hang out with. And so, and so yeah, so for us, it's a very in-person thing. And it's kind of a curated experience. And, um, and it's lovely. Is, that, is it now? That's more than you wanted, isn't it? Oh no, that was that's that's amazing, and it's it's um it's just so interesting how you how that just kind of grew naturally. So go back to you did a little bit about the money because that's let's I just I'm curious about the money aspect because as uh so Mormonism is run on lay leadership, so right. you're expected to serve without pay, right? Yeah. It's an expectation. Yeah. And so one of the hangups that we're finding in, you know, I'm in contact with most, and Bill is also most the kind of post-Mormon groups who are trying to do something like that. And some are more successful than others, but some have been going on for years and it's something similar where they bring in speakers and the whole deal. Um, but one of the hangups is, you know, as people are coming from Mormonism, but yet we They're still scarred. kind of They're have the stamp of Mormonism. We yeah. Well, yeah, we still have yeah. the stamp, right? And so we, it's still expected that all the time that, you know, me or Bill or someone is putting into this group should be done for free, right? And and so it's this question, and someone posed it to me once that, you know, if televangelists, they're getting millions of dollars and all these houses and yachts and whatever, and and is it, is it possible to truly build something bigger than just like a neighborhood community? Uh, you know, will people right. not pay when they don't have the fear of God behind them for these kinds be, of services? I think you know, it needs to be seen, Brett, and I'll tell you why. Yeah. The first thing I'll say is, is that the infrastructure that you're talking about, that like the Mormons and the Christians have, um, that was built up over hundreds or thousands of years. Like, you know, that, 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 you know, and so in a sense, trying to build a new collective way of pursuing goodness, you know, or, or, or a collective way of pursuing, of, of answering life's ultimate questions, you know, if that's what, how you want to define a religion. Um, it takes, it takes a long time. You know, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of there's a lot of candidates and, and, and evolution, like most of them die out and don't make it. And then somebody figures it out. And so that process takes a long time and we're not, we're, we're early in this game. And what's more is, is that the way that the, the way that the secular community, we've had the, we've had this kind of secular narrative ever since the enlightenment, the idea that there's, you know, that this might be all there is and what, you know, coming up with the new reasons and new, new, new explanations for why we are prone to gather together or why we are prone to support each other or where love, where love comes in. The difficulty is, is that for the vast majority of that time, the secular community has been under such persecution and that it's defined itself by being 
against Christianity. It's defined itself by what it's not. And so when I go to those atheist clubs, it, it, it makes sense that that's how they define themselves. Like church and state stuff is always at the forefront. And so, I, and so they're always trying to carve out a way, uh, uh, like, like, it's okay to be secular, right? Like we're, some, we're right, right? You know? And you can't build a movement about like, we're right. You can't build a movement around like, we're just here to be together because we're right. Or about like, we're not that, we're not that, we're not that. On some level, you have to be able to articulate, this is what we're for. This is what we're trying to build. And, and the, most of the secular communities that I've seen have tried to be like, we're for science and we're for reason. And those are not inspiring things. Nobody, no, nobody gathers together and sacrifices their lives for science or for reason that way. Some people do for science and reason in different ways. But ultimately, you have to be for something that's inspiring and that and, and that's connected to your to your humanity and so like you know i as i might have mentioned to you last week like when we were starting to plan these caravan meetings one of the women in the group said look if this is going to be about, about anything except love if this is going to be about anything except except love I'm, I'm just not interested i don't have time for it like i'm not i'm not really willing to make many sacrifices for like to help people be reasonable or try to talk other people out of Christianity. Like I'm not here, like that's not inspiring me. But if you want to talk about building a community of people that will care about and love each other and out of their collective love and their collective care, then seek to reach out beyond themselves and make things better for other people who don't have the benefit of that community. I'm all in for that. Like that's what got me into church. It wasn't the Jesus will send me to hell narrative. Like half, for most of my Christian, most of my friends for most of their Christian journey didn't believe half of that stuff anyway. What, what, what they were into was being part of a loving community that reached out to people that were alone or that were lost. And it said to them, come and join our community and we'll love you too. And we'll teach you how to love each other and you'll have better lives and you'll be able to help other people have better lives. And that's still inspiring to me. So, so, so in some level, I would go like, it's early days on the money, okay? The early Christian communities, nobody's getting paid. And, and, and they struggled along and they were small and lots of them grew up and lots of them died out. And like, you know, and I think it's that way, the early communist communities, the early any community. And you go like, you know, the early CrossFit communities, you know, <laughs> early Weight Watchers communities. And then eventually like you get the formula down. And I think a big part of the formula is, the other thing that remains to be seen is most of the post-Mormon groups I've seen and most post-Christian groups I've seen had such bad experiences with charismatic leadership, with leaders that were, you know, had some, were good speakers or were great relationally and that, that, that sort of inspired people's trust that they're like, you know what, anybody shows any of that kind of leadership, we want nothing to do with them. No, nope, we're, we're going to do, we're going to make all our decisions by committee, Every, it's going to be like, and, and the truth of the matter is that you can look in business, you can look in education, you can look in the arts and no great band doesn't have a leader and no great political party doesn't have a mouthpiece and no great school doesn't have some kind of inspiring leader at the beginning of it. Like we human beings are geared and we are evolutionally hardwired to respond to leadership. So the answer to bad leadership or manipulative leadership or, or lying leadership is not no leadership. It's that you got to have accountable leadership. And so I'm really into like political theory and, you know, uh, 
David, oh, who's the guy, David Popper, like, you know, stuff about like, that the most important thing that a community can figure out is not how to pick the right leaders, but how to get rid of the wrong leaders, like create an accountability structure that if somebody starts to abuse the system, you can easily get them out of there. Because we'll always make bad decisions and there will always be bad leaders or people that become corrupted in one way or another in any human situation. But the answer to that is not like, well, let's just not have leaders. Because if you don't, then the organizations that still have leaders will dominate you because they'll be able to mobilize faster and be more flexible and move around. So one of the things I would say is like, listen, if you don't want to have any cool charismatic speakers or, or if you want to say like, hey, that guy's the best speaker, that woman's the best speaker, but we're not going to let her speak every week. We're going to have you know, we're, we're going to take turns because nobody should be the boss. You know, like, first of all, don't, don't, just because this person's a speaker, don't let them be the boss. It just means that they're good at articulating your values. So just have them do that. But the second thing is like, if you're going to, if you're going to ace out all the, all the leaders, they'll go find somewhere else to exercise their gifts and you'll be left with an organization that won't last very long. Yeah, it's so interesting. I've been co-chairing this post-Mormon group in Boise for about four years and this is the first year that we are going to be asking for donations for the speakers that we're bringing in and the things that we're doing. And it's very, it can be very tentative, very, touchy. Uh, very, touchy. very yeah, very touchy, but we're hoping that, Hey, like we've been doing this for a couple of years. This, this costs time and it costs money and we have a community now. Radio? And Don't they listen to public radio? <laughs> I don't I mean, know. It, it's, it's, this, like, it's this allergy that you're talking about that as soon as I say we're going to bring this person in and they deserve to be paid, then it starts to feel like, oh, it might be tithing. And then I'm wrapped into another religion. And and it's this allergy that we've been fighting. And so we we just haven't asked for a couple of years. We've just been doing it because the three people who started it, uh, me and me and another couple just said, like, we need this. So we're just going to do this. We'll out of our own ourselves. pockets and our yeah, yep. and out, out of our own time. And this is the first year where we're going to start to, to yeah. ask for some help from the community. And so we kind of had like a meeting with the community saying like, Hey, you guys need to offer to open up your homes for game night. It can't always be at our house. You guys, we're, we need to start paying for speakers. And we're hoping that because we've, we've made these really deep friendships over the, over the past couple of years that they'll know that I'm not here for your money, you know, we just to keep this going, we have to get something behind it. So it's tough, and though. Thing, and the thing is, like, I, I think like it is tough. But like the thing is, you have to ask yourself, am I providing something that is valuable enough that people should pay for it? So so that's the thing, like the meeting has to be well run. It has to be joy. It has to be inspiring. It has to be good. Like, you know, you like. Because like they always said in the Christian church when I was growing up, they always said it was for God. But it was interesting how people were willing to give a lot more money if 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 if, if the show was good, right? And and if and if the children's program was good, and if it provided value for their family, like it, it, it wasn't for God. It was for like this is this is blessing my life. Like and that's the same thing. Like do I give to public radio stations? I do if I like I do if I like the content. If I depend on it, if I want it to still be there, and that's what they always say to me. It's like, look, if you value the station, if you want it to be there, you got to contribute. If you don't contribute, we won't be here. And they're like, well, I want that to be there. And so, and so you have to create something that actually adds value to people's lives. And I think that that's the really important thing is like a lot of times these groups go like, well, we just want to have a place to gather together and like be together. And that like that only lasts for a little while. And then people are like, look, you know, we, I, I can do this on my own. 
Like the, the, the people that are good at making friendships make friendships and then they just go like, we can do this on our own. We don't need this group to do this friendship thing. And the awkward people go like, oh, shit, all the cool people left and then we don't know what to do with each other. And so on some level, there has to be somebody saying like, look, we're it's not about it's not just about us. It's about doing something in the world like like we're going to do something cool together. Like we're going to we're going to do something together that none of us could do individually and we're going to create a space where you know here you want you want to really really mess here i'll give you a word you want to really freak out your church people because like i make no bones about the fact that like yeah i'm, t I'm stealing all the best parts of religion like religion worked for two thousand years in spite of the fact that it's a bloodthirsty horrible narrative so like they must the, the covered suppers the potlucks must be really good so much shame and trauma, huh? Like, yeah, like I'm gonna fuck up your, I'm gonna fuck up your sex life. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna really mess with your sense of security. I'm gonna, I'm gonna ruin a lot of families. Like, but like, so they must. The other parts, the music must be awesome, right? So I'm like, I'm gonna steal all the good stuff: the music, the gathering together, the eating, like the inspiring talk that like lifts me up and makes me feel part of something bigger than. I'm gonna, we're gonna steal all that stuff. Here's the other thing: I'm gonna steal. Is the thing that, that when I when I went to that youth group at 15 years old, the thing that turned me on so much was like, I was like, I was a kid with, you know, like I had hair, I was an athlete, I had all these things I don't have anymore. Um, I didn't need that group. I didn't need that group. And that's not why my friend invited me to come to that youth group. From the moment I walked in, he was like, do you see what we're doing here? We're reaching out to all these kids that are kind of struggling and we're creating this thing that changes their lives for the better. And he's like, Bart, you're such a, you're a natural leader. He said, we could really use you. Like if you, if you do this, you could really help us and we could, we could really change a lot of lives together. And boy, oh, that spoke to me. Like I'm going to change some lives. I loved the idea of being hero of, of, of like doing something that would make a difference in somebody else's life. It's a reliable turn on an endorphin boost for me. In our secular human singing caravan, some of the people I go like, look, you don't need this group. But I said, this group could be a vehicle by which you could participate in a group. And like, it's very hard to change somebody's life by yourself. It takes a huge investment. But as part of this group, we're going to change lives on a routine basis. We're going to create fellowship for people and create connection for people. And their lives are going to get better. And like, you could be a part of it. And you don't have to carry the whole weight by yourself. People are like, that sounds really good. That sounds really good. Because if you've ever taken on a needy person all by yourself or just your family takes them on, it's it's a slog. I mean, it's forever. And they just suck you dry. And yeah, and, and pretty soon you're like, don't come over to my house anymore. And so I don't want to I don't want to transform lives by inviting people into my into my house all the time. I've done that. It's really exhausting. So I create this space that's a, a space where we can collectively work together and we can like collectively help that guy or collectively help that family and see them grow and become a more solid family and go like, we did that. And you're like, how does that make you feel? It makes me feel more human. Makes me feel better about my tribe. I like, I love that stuff. So, so what I'm saying is like, I don't, I, I don't run away. Like if you go like, this feels like church or this feels like we're trying to do a religious thing again. And you go like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, exactly. Like every culture in every world invents a religion. There must be a reason. Like, why don't we just have a religion that's based upon a narrative that we actually believe? A narrative that actually is flexible. So if we learn a new fact, we'll just change our minds instead of dogmatically holding up onto the old story. Like, 
I'm okay with religion. It's supernatural craziness that I can't stand. I'm okay with the idea of collectively gathering together to, to promote our values and to transform the lives of broken people because we think it's fun. And so like, that would be my thing. It's like, I think the secular community, it is, it is we are just the front end of people embracing, oh, our first instinct was throw out the baby with the bathwater, throw out everything that, anything that looks religious in the least, get rid of it. And I think that's the second wave comes through and goes like, ah, nah. let's take all the good stuff and get rid of all the bullshit. Let, let me ask this then. We've got a few minutes left. If anybody's out there and they go, you know what? That's what I want. I want to build a community that doesn't have the religious bullshit and it's going to serve people. It's going to welcome everybody, which is, I think, two main points that you've made that I think are deeply valuable. It's not going to welcome everybody. That my friend group didn't have or doesn't have, you know? Not going and, to welcome um, it's not going to welcome everybody. Yep. So, well, you say that, but you're saying like you're, you're going to make, you're going to allow the quirky people in. You're going to allow the, the cool people in. Everybody's going to have to play nice in the sandbox. Um, any other advice if somebody wants to create a secular community that thrives? You've, you've been in situations where it's not done so well. You've been in situations where it's done well. Any other secrets to success? Yes. yes. I mean, the first thing is this. Don't take any, don't invite anybody in. Like these lay out your, what your values are. And if somebody comes in and they don't share your values, kick them out. Mm. There's no God that says you have to love everybody. Like, like the, I'm building a tribe here. If you don't fit in my tribe, I'll kick you out. Like, don't, and you're like, well, well, you're supposed to be inclusive. Who said I was supposed to be inclusive? Every tribe has like, you know, you shun people. You throw people out. Like that's the only way it can protect the good of the tribe. So if you go like, well, we have to make it work for every single person. Somebody goes like, listen, I want there to be klezmer music because I love that. And you go, well, then we ought to have once a month web klezmer music. Like, no, like this is the music we're going to play. You know, you're like, what happened? You know, like, for our group, a, a bunch of black leaders in Cincinnati, black humanist leaders came and said like, hey, I don't see you doing anything. Like, like what's your outreach for black people? I was like, you know, what's interesting is like, the black humanists I've met, they, they, you know, we, we started talking. I grew up, I spent most of my life in the black community. So I know the black community really well. And I was like, black people coming out of church have different, you know, some different issues. I said, like, you know, if we try to do all the black people issues, we'll just do it really poorly. And there'll be like one black person that'll come and they'll just, they'll hate it. So I said, I'll tell you what, why don't we work with, like, let's start a, let's start a, 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 a black fellowship with you guys, you guys start it and we'll just, we'll support you. I'll give you all my stuff and we'll work things out. And like, you know, how can I be supportive? And it was like, no, no, no. I just wanted, you know, the guy was like, I just wanted to criticize what you were doing. Like, I just mm -hmm. wanted to accuse you of being not inclusive. And I was like, yeah, here's the thing about tribes. It's like, you know, black people, you know, like I went to black churches a lot. I love black churches when I was in the whole thing. Like there's a whole different vibe. And if you take a black church and a white church and you go like, let's do some of each, you'll just have a shitty church service both ways. Like, you know, like, like, like the high church Episcopal thing, I can get into that. And the, the, the gospel thing, I can get into that. You mix it up, it's a mess. Like, I'll do Christmas with your family. You can do Christmas with my family, but we're not going to mix our traditions, right? And so what I'm saying is, is that, and you know, I believe in interdependence, like, or interaction. Like, I'd like to visit yours. You can go visit mine. But like this idea of everything needs to be integrated. That, and that's why I see the humanist community. Like, they're, they're like so woke. And, and they're just trying to, and like, you can't build communities that way. Communities get built around shared values, but also about sh around shared folkways. And so like, one of the things is like, I'm really clear about like, this is the kind of music that me and my friends are going to play. If you like jazz, you should start your own club. 
And like, we'll support you. And we may even visit, but like, this is a club for the jazz people. This is a club for the funk people. Like, it's like a band. Just because you play music doesn't mean you can be anybody's band. Bands have a vibe and a personality to them. And like, I think it's okay to just embrace, like, so, so, the, so the first thing I would say is like, not everybody can be in mine, but here's the other thing. And this is the big trick. You said, is there anything I've, I've learned though? The thing that we learned was don't ever describe what you're doing as the way. This is the way, this is the right way to be secular, or this is, this is the way all people grow, or this is what human beings need. Just have a little worldview humility and say, this is a story and an approach that's working for us. If you've got something working for you, ride it. If, but if you don't, you might want to try this because like it's working for us. It's working for a lot of our friends. Like if it works for you, great. And if it doesn't, Hey, and that's the answer. Like, does everybody need a secular religion? And I think the answer is manifestly no. Lots of people are thriving without it. You know, I need it. My friends need it. So we started a little club and we never go like, this is the answer for the humanity. This is all people need this. We just go like, yeah, this works for us. We started a little jazz club. If you like jazz, you should come over. If you hate jazz, don't come. We're not going to change the music for you. This is the music we're gonna play. You want there to be a me, club? Start your own phone club. I wish you would have told me this like two years ago because it took me months to kick out the first person of our group where it just wasn't jiving because okay. like like Bill's been excommunicated. You know, we have like some excommunication trauma. And uh, yeah, don't kick thought, me out of anything else. The damn thought it. that I was excommunicating someone, oh, it kept me up at night. It was so hard the first time I did it, but we couldn't go where this group wanted to go yeah. with this person playing his own jazz in the corner, and we just weren't jiving. And it was so hard. It was so hard, but it, but, you know, it, it you, took me months. Lower, if you lower the volume, if you lower the volume, Brett, like when they excommunicated Bill, they were like, we're rejecting you, and God is rejecting you. And you will burn in hell forever unless you unless you change your mind. It was a lot like that. Yeah, when I kick somebody out of my club, when I kick somebody when I kick somebody out of my club, it's sort of like when I just look at somebody and go like, you know, it's not you, it's me. We're breaking up. It's going to be okay. It's not a good fit. Like you know, I'm like I, you know, I just I just don't feel like I just don't feel like doing this anymore. It's like it's like you're working with somebody on a movie and you're just like you know what we we just have different visions for the movie. Let's. Why don't you go make your movie and I'll make my movie and I'll come to your movie. I like your, you know, I, like I don't. And so I think that some, you know, for me, getting rid of some of the, like getting some, rid of some of the strident atheists and they'd just be like, well, we, we want to go and we want to protest at the creation museum in Kentucky. And, and, and we were just, you know, the rest of us, you know, yeah, we're not going to do that. Yeah. You want to do that? Go ahead. We're not, that's not what, that's not what this group is about. Awesome. And so, yeah, I, I think that's it's really important to know who you are and who you're not and to not be all highfalutin about it and act as though like who you are is so important. This is my, this is, this is just my gang, man. This is, this is, this is like, it's like my ultimate Frisbee team. Like, not that I'm on one, but like, if you have an ultimate Frisbee team, nobody ever thinks like my ultimate Frisbee team is the key to the, is, is, is the salvation of the universe. Just like this, we like to play. This is the guys like to play. And, and, and your Aunt Sally comes in. She goes, like, I don't understand that ultimate Frisbee. I don't have any interest in playing. And you don't go like, Aunt Sally, you need to play ultimate Frisbee. You just go like, what are you into, Aunt Sally? Like, you know, like, it doesn't matter to me that you don't want to be in my club. It's, it's not the, the, the future of the universe doesn't depend on it, nor does your individual salvation. 
So I think like it, it just, just lower the volume. Like, yeah, you, you know, you, you, you kick people out, but you don't have any, there's no moral attached to it. You know, I, I kick, we kick somebody out of one of our, our, our fellowships, you know, and it's just because like they, they were sexually a predator and you just go like, they just treated women badly. And we we're just like, yeah, you know what? There's a lot of vulnerable women in this group. I was like, I just don't want you around. We just kicked them out. We're just like, you know, this, this, this needs to be a safe place for people and you're not a safe dude. And it, mm -hmm. it didn't feel, you know, and he goes like, well, who are you to kick me out? I'm like, I'm the, I'm the guy who runs the thing. You know, like, it's my dinner. You're out. <laughs> my house. I rent the place. Yeah, yeah there's still boundaries and lines and rules just because we gave up one myth doesn't mean we have to not have any any boundaries or lines yeah i'm with you yeah. i appreciate it like it, i think i think people that leave religion community is one of the things they are sad they lost and we've got to find a way to give it back to take it back and as you're as you're pointing to there's ways to do that i want to say one last thing to brit mm. brit COVID has changed a lot and people's appetite for in-person gatherings is at least temporarily really lowered. And, and their willingness to get out and go and be somewhere. Um, Netflix has gotten really good. And people have lost some of their spunk and mojo. I have. I have. I don't have as much energy for the stuff as you know as, as i used to um i still believe in it and i'm still committed to it but like i think it's really important that the people that are trying to do this recognize that the fact that we may fail over and over again doesn't mean that we're wrong it just means it might it, it might take some time you ever see that movie saving private ryan and the first scene that the thing goes down and the first 15 guys just get shot in the head and they're gone and the next guys make it like 10 feet and then they all get shot and you go like and then the, and then the, our heroes make it to the beach and they save the world and at the end of the day you have to ask yourself were the guys that got shot after four seconds were they heroes too and the answer is of course they are like they took a bullet so the next guy could get through and i go like a lot of people are going to have to fail at this stuff before we figure out the formula that really works for people, like the way that they can spend some time together every week that actually does inspire them to live better lives and makes them happier and makes it worthwhile and makes them willing to give the money that it takes to keep it going the next week. And we may fail 50, 50, 50 and 100 times. And the question you have to ask yourself is, you know, do you believe that hard times are coming for humanity? And I do, harder than now. Like, I don't know that it's gonna be the road Car Cormac McCarthy's the road, but like, I think it's going to be way worse than the Great Depression. I think we're headed towards a really bad time. And when that really bad time hits, pe the people that are going to make it are going to be the ones that know how to band together, resolve mm -hmm. conflict, and give hope to that's their very, children. That's right? very Book of Revelations of you, Bart. <laughs> I'm just telling you, like, that's very apocalyptic. <laughs> If, and if you like, if you don't see hard times coming for humanity, you're not. Yeah, no, I see Because this little yeah. pandemic of ours, fragile. this little pandemic of ours was a little easy, easy virus. If something like Ebola got out like that, 
it, it, something like SARS got around like that, we'd be so screwed, right? And so I believe that the people that will make it will be the ones that have the gifts and the skills and the abilities that are developed in the context of loving communities. Mm-hmm. And so I really believe that like the Titanic is sinking and the communities like the ones that we're talking about that we're trying to figure out how to make them work are like little lifeboats. And you're like, well, we'll just go back to religion. And they go like, most of the people that we'll, that we'll need won't, won't be able to go back to believing in any kind of God, especially mm-hmm. in the face of that kind of tragedy. I think like that, 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 that toothpaste is toothpaste is out of the tube. And so the question is like, can we build lifeboats that don't require you to believe in some kind of fantastic supernatural mythology? And, the, and, and, and either we will and, and the, the species will do better or we won't and it'll be really worse. And so like for me, I'm willing to keep trying on this stuff, knowing that I might caravan might fail and the next thing I try might fail and the next thing I try might fail. And like you go like, well, why? Like maybe maybe the guy after me will, will go like, oh, Bart did this wrong, Bart did that wrong, and Bart did the other thing. I'm going to try this other thing. Maybe he'll work or maybe she'll work. Her thing will work. And you go like, well, I don't need it. To, I don't need my thing to be the thing that works. Like I'm one of a thousand people in garages trying to figure out the Apple computer. Yeah. And, and the nice thing is that you're not getting actually shot at. We make lovely relationships along the way. So it right. makes it a little bit better to swallow <laughs> even right. when we fail. Yes. Yes. And so I'm just like, I'm with, like, I can't think of anything more worthwhile for me. You know, like if I was a brilliant scientist, I'd be working on a cure for cancer. You know, and like if I was a terrific composer, I'd be trying to write music that would inspire people forever. But like, this is the thing I know how to do. I know how to throw a good party. And that's essentially what this is about. It's about trying to figure out like, what's the party that you can throw that will actually inspire people to make more of their lives? And I'm like, I think it's a really good thing for you to be working on and to be talking to people about and trying to sort out and visiting other people's shops and, tr- and picking up a, a thing there and a trick there and a, and, a, and a ritual there. And you go like, well, you know, what if my thing doesn't ultimately work? And I go, ah, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Be part of a larger process. If you have time, we come back to the story. If you have time, Bart, I have one more question, but we're coming up on an hour. Are you okay? Yeah, yeah, I got got time for one more. Okay, one more question. If I were, I'm going to embarrass Bill a little bit, but if I were to ask Bill, if I were to put a gun to his head and say, give me an excellent sermon on grace, he could still do it. He could. If, if I needed to get up and do a sermon on all, any number of things, I could still do it. And I'm sure you still have that ability to. Um, so with scripture, what did you kind of do with scripture? Do you pull out of scripture kind of your favorite stories and put your humanist twist and do it in a similar way? Did you just kind of put it off to the side because it's got enough attention on it and you now use other books and other stories to do sermons, where did you end up with scripture? Because we have people like me and you and Bill who have spent hours actually in the scriptures, in you know medieval exegesis, just like tearing the stuff apart. And then, what do you do with that kind of kind of in inhumanism? And where did you land with scripture? I use scripture two ways. Um, I use scripture. Scripture is like scripture is part of the Christian language that I grew up in. And when I'm talking to people in that culture, I still speak that language. So if somebody's grieving the loss of their loved one and they are, they have a fully Christian framework and I'm trying to be helpful to them. Or if, you know, if some, somebody's gay and they're Christian and they think God hates them or somebody's gay, if somebody think, if somebody's 
worried because their mother died and they're sure she's going to burn in hell and they're totally thoroughly evangelical. I have scripture to talk, share with them and say, well, doesn't your scripture say this? Doesn't the Bible say this? I, what do you think Jesus meant when he said that? And like, I use it to talk to people. Sometimes I use it to talk to people who say that, who tell, who, who, who say my son is going to burn in hell because he's agnostic or you're going to burn in hell because you're agnostic. And like, huh, but doesn't the scripture say this and that? And so like, I've learned that I have to be able to speak to Christians using their own language. And so it's nice to know my way around scripture because that's a language I can use to, to talk with them. And sometimes I have to make a biblical case for why people that don't believe in God might still have a chance of going to heaven in that guy's worldview. Because if he doesn't believe that, then he, then he can't talk to his son in a reasonable way because he, 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 he's just going to beat him over the head all the time because he's convinced he's going to burn in hell. So, so I use it to talk to Christians. The other thing is I use it in an ironic way with people like you where like something comes up and I go like, ah, it's like the old prodigal son. And, and you're like, oh, I know that story. And like, it's, it's sort of like a mythology. It's like, it's like, oh, it's like, uh, you know, it's like Paul Bunyan, you know, like where, but like I, I, I reference the one that we both know and, and, and we smile because we're like, it's not true, factually, but there is a truth in that story. There's a, you know, that applies to what we were just talking about. And so we're going to use it. So like, I think it's just, it's just literature and I, I treat it like literature. But when it comes to doing stuff like caravan, nope, it's too triggering for people. And so what we do instead is we had a whole caravan on the way that scripture functioned for us as believers and about how important it is for a community to have a set of stories and poems and languages that they all share. And so we're very... We're very much and, and sort of going like it's all made up, but like because we, if you have a common set of stories or a common set of language, common set of images, then you can talk to each other in shorthand. And so, but the other thing is also in times of stress, it's good to be able to call up things that you've read so many times that you just know them. You know what to like when people when somebody's died and you say, oh, "So Bart, are you are you are you cultivating a list of quotations and poems and things that are particularly meaningful to you?" Yeah, so are all my friends. And sometimes we share them with each other. And sometimes we look at each other and go like, ooh, give me that one. And then we share it with somebody else. And we share it with somebody else. And you're like, well, what happens if you share a story like that or if you share a quotation like that over and over again? Carl Sagan had this wonderful, wonderful quote about, uh, or, or no, it was Alan Watt, that we are the universe becoming aware of itself. It's a beautiful thought. He articulates it really beautifully. He's like, my son shared it with me. I've shared it back with and so like it's now just that you go like so you know it off the top of your head yeah and your son knows it off the top of his head yeah and sometimes when he's discouraged to go hey man remember remember you're not just you're not just a punk a punk you're the universe becoming aware of itself he goes, oh, that's, true. that's true i think the patron saint that shows up the most is like the new patron saint of kind of the shorthand language is Brene brown that's the prophetess that is leading many of these groups you know you, has, you develop a short hand with some language like hey we're going to be authentic here or whatever nice. yes. she's become That's a patron saint to many of these groups and, and there are little it's passages kind of her stuff that are that, uh -huh. and i go like yeah and and for me like anybody that's ever listened to my podcast or that ever listens to me speak you go like you never get out of there without an ingersoll quote and like i know ingersoll is the person that makes humanism preach he makes it sing he, he, he says, you know, I, I, have, I have a passage from Ursula Goodenough, who wrote The Sacred Depths of Nature. She was a scientist 
writing about how the true story of how we came to be exists is more inspiring than any made up religious story you'll ever hear. And she has a wonderful passage in which she talks about what, you know, why we, why, why this knowledge can transform our lives. I, you know, I quote it all the time. I read I quote the first, the introduction to that book. I, I, I have, I have spoken it into a tape recorder and I sent it to hundreds of people. And so Ingersoll, good enough, Brene Brown, Carl Sagan, you know, uh, Mary Oliver has a wonderful poem that we all read over and over again in the context of Caravan. We just read it over and over again. And you, and you go, and, and we've talked about this and you go like, well, we, cause we can come up with an endless number of, of cool, of cool quotes. And we were sitting around with people and said, yeah, yeah, but you know what? We should do the same ones once a year. Like we, we'll always be adding in new ones, but we should return and do some of the old classics. And you go like, why? Because like, because every year I hear that poem, but I'm a year older. So it hits me in a different way. And that's how scripture works in people's lives. Like it's a passage that you carry with you throughout your life. And it means different things at different moments. And it develops a sort of a sense of, of, of resonance. And, and your mother said it. And your grandmother said it. <coughs> and you go, like, there's not enough time for that to happen. And I go, sure there is. You just won't be there to see it. So, so in this, you know, what do they say? An optimist is somebody who plants a tree knowing that they'll never, that they won't live long enough to live in the shade of it. I'm, I'm plant, you know, like, I'm, so we all plant some trees and we all, and we all take a passage and we say, this is the one I'm going to, I'm going to tattoo on my brain. This is the one I'm going to memorize. This is the one I'm going to share with my kids. This is the one they're going to say at my funeral. And then maybe somebody at that funeral says, that's going to be the one I, and then it takes on a larger community resonance. And that's how every scripture in every religion started out. None of them, none of them were, were received by millions of people all at once right away. Mm. They, they all started out. Somebody wrote it and they shared it with somebody else. And some of them caught hold and some of them don't. It's evolution. And so mm. I'm like, just, just, just participate, man. That's such a good argument for because people will ask me, you know, what's what's the humanist Bible? You know, what's the book that every humanist reads? And it's like we're kind of writing it. We're kind of seeing what stories are really going to be strong enough. What what stories are going to be passed down from humanist to humanist that yes. 500 years from now are, you know, this is a great story. Absolutely. We're writing it right now. Absolutely. But, but we don't but we don't have one yet. You know, we don't have something like the Bible where we've been working on these stories for 2000 years and got all these commentaries on it. We, we can't you know quite compete stories? with that yet. You know, it's one of the stories. Hmm. There was this guy named Charles Darwin. And and he and some people like everybody said that life went from the most complex being and he created simpler beings. And Charles Darwin was the per person that figured out the complexity grows out of simplicity. Mm. And that's where we came from. It's an amazing story. It's a transformative moment for me when I realized like what that really meant was like that it started. And that's where Ursula good enough is good. But the idea that, and, and she has a great passage where she describes how the very process by which we develop consciousness a brain is the cells, single-celled organisms theoretically could live forever. But when you start having somatic cells and you know, like a body and, 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 and DNA, then the body dies, but the DNA goes forward. And so she's like, the price of consciousness is death. 
Like in order, in order to have a brain big enough to be self-aware, you have to die. And, 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 and she's like, it's a good trade-off, you know, like every wonderful thing that ever, you know, like every wonderful thing that you enjoy, you go like, well, but it's sad. It won't last forever. Yeah. Yeah. But if it lasted forever, you wouldn't be able to enjoy it. And so there's, so, so, so I think like Darwin's story is going to be part of that Bible. I don't know what version of the telling, but it's some, but for, for, you know, in the years to come, I would think that people would sit around a fire with their kids on a camp at, at, at a camp out and go like, you know, see this fire like we used to not know anything. We used to not know anything. And now we know so much. And here's here's some of the people that made it possible. And you know, so that's why, like, you know, on our campus, we used to we used to celebrate Darwin's birthday every year. Have a big Darwin Day celebration. Cause we were like, that guy was the beginning of a certain kind of scientific knowledge. He's a good symbol of it. And I'm like, he didn't invent it, right? And there was another guy who was writing a book just about like it doesn't matter it's the story we tell and it's, it's going to be part of it's going to be part of the story of humanity and so yeah i i Brit, i i really appreciate talking to you guys i don't think there's a thing i'm saying that you don't already know this has been so lovely though just to find another someone across the pond you know across the way and just say hey i see you doing your thing over there i yeah. see you i see yeah. you doing that thing <laughs> well listen you know Bless your guys' hearts. A humanist blessing upon your heads. Um, <laughs> thanks so much for, for doing it. And, you know, thanks so much for not only inviting me to participate with your guys' audience, but also just for, like, for building up that audience over 10 years, Bill. Like, I'm just so grateful that the people that I'm watching across your little screen putting up their comments, like, I'm just really grateful that, that they have a, 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 a place to kind of have this conversation. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, and I'm sure it's going to bear fruit. I really, I'm sure it's already awesome. bearing fruit. So before you, we head friend. out, tell us, tell the audience where, you know, if, if you're saying something that's resonating to our audience, tell us where you can find you and oh, all I'm your so stuff. Beautiful. My name is Bart Campolo and it's spelled just like you would imagine. And if you just go to Bart Campolo, Google my name, like the first thing will come up with this website, bartcampolo.org. And if you email me there, it literally comes into my email box and it might take me six, it might take me, you know, six weeks, but I answer everybody who ever writes to me. Um, and, uh, and, and, and the podcast is called Humanize Me. And it's, 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 it's not as good, it's probably not as good as this podcast, but like we're trying. Um, and, uh, and, 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 and yeah. And, and if I can ever be of any, any help to anybody, like it, 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 it takes a long time, but like, you know, feel free, feel free to, feel free to reach out. Yeah, I'm just, we so I'm just appreciate you, Bart. It's been, a, yeah. it's been a huge honor to just pick your brain and just, uh, learn from the lessons that you've painfully learned along the way. And we just so appreciate you having on. Yeah. For, forgive for me you for coming on. Like a big old know-it-all. I don't know. I don't know, <laughs> Jack, I don't know Jack squat, but, but I'm, I'm really excited about trying to figure it out. Yeah. I'm so, and I'm so grateful for you guys for, for trying with me. Well, thanks so much. We'll see you, Bart. Appreciate yeah. it. All right. All right. What'd you think, Bill? Oh, you're muted. Yeah, some thoughts are that we're we're trying to create we're trying to create community. Like you and I both realize this, people um who leave religion and are now on this side of things and really thinking rationally and trying to make healthy decisions about how they show up in the world, they want a community. I think at least a lot of them do. Um 
it's it's been attempted, right? Places like Oasis and mixed results, but generally over time they tend to burn out and it dies. And even he's pointing to the idea of two things. One, he's pointed to his own lack of success when he did it at the university. And he also points to like, hey, we're going to be a lot of failures before we get this right. And part of me feels uh, depressed at all that information, right? Like it's not really possible maybe in this moment to create a face-to-face vibrant community. But we've got to figure out what works and what doesn't. And part of me is also really excited. The last conversation with him and then added on with today, I'm in my mind going, okay, how can Mormon Discussion Incorporated, the entity that this podcast falls under and several others, how can we create, help create a community? How could we have a, could we have a party once a month that's fun and then invite those people to show up once a month to help at the homeless shelter down the street or the food kitchen back the other way? And I'm, I'm, I'm going through my head about how, how that could work because I want to try it. I, I think I do. Um, and I'm just kind of wrestling with what works and what doesn't work. And so this conversation has been formative for me to try to work out what, what works and what doesn't. Yeah. And his kind of admonition to build a <laughs> throw people out that need it. Um, I, I think that, you know, that has some merit to it as well. Your thoughts. Yeah, I had two things that came up. So it just kind of obviously like history is my background. And so I'm always relating this to something in history. But it reminds me of like, you know, you write the Declaration of Independence and you say, we're going to do our own thing because the king's evil. And then we create the the government under the Articles of Confederation. And there's like no government, right? Like, like we're so traumatized by the king. There's just going to be no government and it just fails and it's bloody and it's awful because we just say, we're just going to do the opposite of what the king does. And then, you know, that fails and eventually the constitution comes out of it or whatever, but it, 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 it just kind of brings me back in history. We're always kind of doing this kind of pendulum. And if, if you can, if you can do it right, you kind of can find some nice balance and you can have some peace for a while, or you can be in a good place for a little bit. And so it just kind of reminds me that as we're coming out of Mormonism, it's, it's naive of us to think that, Oh, I haven't gone to church in two years. So it's totally behind me. Well, there's some things that still linger for a long time, especially if you were raised in it um, as a child, you know, that, uh, can still affect your ability to participate in communities going forward. And so that's just going to be a learning process for the entire community as all of us are trying to do this thing, but we have these triggers, we have these allergies. And the other thing that I thought was interesting was what he did with scripture. I think I was expecting him to say, yeah, I still tell the Jonah on the whale story, but I do it from a totally different perspective or I do it mm. Or, or I do a Jesus story and I do it for a human from a humanist perspective. But I found it interesting that he just really kind of put it to the side and just said, we're going to go to a new place here and we're going to, we're going to develop scripture as we go. And I, I'm not sure I was expecting him to say that. So that was another interesting point that I'm going to have to think about is, is um, it's something I haven't done with the group here in Boise of just like, Hey, what are our kind of like favorite quotes? And maybe, maybe we start off with one or two, or we have one regularly once a year, we usually do a friend's giving. And, and I had a friend, um, my co-chair just gave a lovely poem and like, what if we did that every year? You know, I'm just thinking about that, 
that uh, process of kind of gathering scripture as you go in a group. And that's not something that we've tackled yet, but it's really interesting to hear him talk about that aspect. Yeah, you're, you've made more progress in this area than I have. I, I tend to have a, a big kind of party at my home a few times a year where anybody and everybody can come. And then there's these more intimate parties, which are the friends that are closer to me. The And again, like you pointed out last, People, at least to me, they're not because they're like me to make a safe space for everyone to check it out and to be welcomed while also setting boundaries, as he pointed out. Um, again, I've just got to kind of figure out. And again, I don't know that it'll succeed. I almost know that it won't. Yeah. But let's give it a shot. Let's learn from it. Let's see what works and what doesn't. And then maybe yeah. that wisdom can be passed on. And I do think that your role can be even a little bit different because not everybody has to be the head of a community, right? We're all kind of trying to find our way in this space and you occupy a, just because you're such an online presence and your journey has been public for a decade. You know, that's a different kind of leadership. It's a different kind of community. The people who are commenting because um, they see that you're on Facebook and they hop on, it's a different kind of sermon. So there's still a place for um, you know, not every, like he said, like not everybody has to do it like he does. So I do right. think that there's a really important place for what you're doing and providing an online community, because how many times have you found someone, uh, who have found another person in their city who listens to Mormon discussion and now they have something to kind of, um, talk about or whatever. And, and so, yeah, there's, there's room for a lot of, this is a big project. There's room for a lot of a lot of people and what you're doing online is really important too. Yeah. I mean, in a sense, you're right. We are building a community here when we have, you know, 20 people show up to watch the live feed and 2000 behind them watch or listening to the audio over the next couple of weeks. That, that group is connected, although not directly to each other, but in some way they're connected and the chance to leave comments, to interact in that way where you get to share your ideas off of the ideas that are being shared at, it is a form of community. Yeah, it is. And not to be discounted. There's lot, yeah. been lots of people who have changed their lives because they listened. They were just on a road trip and they listened to 20 hours of Mormon stories and all of a sudden a whole new world opened up. So that that has its own role. And so it's it's really important. You know, he said that there really isn't communities that can thrive being against something. But I will say... Again, I try not to mention Mormonism a bunch, but in these two conversations with Bart, we did it a lot. I know we did. It's okay. No big help it. The the subreddit forum of ex-Mormon and this community of ex-Mormonism actually does pretty damn decent being against something, doesn't it? Like, you know, we yeah. all kind of gather together to learn new things about why things don't add up and to yeah. validate that healthier approaches to life doing it different than the way it was done in that system yeah. is okay. I, I see it as a really healthy phase. Like if you, especially as a Mormon woman or whatever, and uh, I have this conscience and like forever, I'm just like, shh, like pushing that conscience down. And then all of a sudden it just kind of comes out, right? Because it's been just subdued for so many years. That's going to come out as anger. And that is righteous anger. That is holy anger. That is transformative anger. And so I never, like, it's not a shameful place to be, to just say where I'm at right now is anger. 
that is a really, really healthy phase and really part of claiming your own voice. I'm angry at you because you took something from me that didn't belong to you, right? That's really, really healthy. And so it's not something to be skipped. I think what he's talking about is if you spend 40 years on X Reddit and that's it, that's all you do, X Mormon Reddit. And that's all you do is just, you're still just following whatever the general conference is, whatever the, whoever said what, whatever press release came out. If you're doing it for 50 years and that's the only thing you do, then you're still just really attached to Mormonism, right? Because you're just still really in this kind of toxic relationship with Mormonism and you've never really outgrown it. And then what do you do? What do you pass on to your kids? Hey kids, my values are, we're going to make a lot of fun of these people and what they do and the silly things that they say. And we're going to pass that down generation to generation. You know, that's just not, that's not, that's not going to, yeah, that's not going to work in the long term, but that doesn't mean that there's something wrong with it. And however long someone needs to stay in that space and go on X, X Mormon Reddit and just wail and scream about all the things that you feel like, you know, that religion has taken from you. It's, it's a really healthy thing to go through. It's just, uh, what do you want your legacy to be in the long run? What do you want to pass yeah. on to your kids? Love it. Two things we need to cover before we end the show. Uh, one is donations, just, you know, we talked at length there for a moment about how you got to have funds to, to be able to do things, to stay around, to, you know, keep the lights on. Um, we've got expenses here. We'd love if people would uh, jump onto the almost, you can just go to almostawakened.org, click the donate button and you're giving directly to the almost awakened podcast. And uh, that money, you know, will be used to, to pay for the things we do here. And, uh, and to some degree to pay you, uh, going forward so that your time is worth something and that you can continue doing this for years to come. Um, anyway, I just want to make sure I got that out. Yeah. And, and then the other thing is uh, it's two part. One is that our normal day for recording these, and we'll try to do live streams as much as we can. There may be moments where we're too worried about all of the plates that need to be managed and maybe we just record and then release it. But Tuesdays uh, around one o'clock, Correct. Correct. So Tuesdays, 1 p.m. is when you can traditionally find us on YouTube or Facebook doing a live stream. And then next week, uh, we're going to talk about consent. And it has been a topic on my mind, and you've just done a bunch of listening and reading and thinking about that as well, though you've spent years thinking about that topic too, but just recent kind of diving back into it. And there's lots of little insights that I think you and I are going to share with the audience that are, for me at least, in the last six months to a year, maybe two years have been just completely new ways to think about consent. And uh, I think it's going to be a really good episode. So I hope folks will turn in for that as well. Anything else from you uh, about today's episode or anything else going forward? No, we just to the, to the audience. We, I just can't tell you the, the lineup that Bill and I have as far as topics to cover that really challenge that are, are just really challenging growth for both Bill and I, and hopefully for all of you. And then all the speakers that we have, lined up. Um, we just have a great year podcast coming your way. And just a reminder that, um, that yeah, Bill, uh, Bart Campolo, you know, he's, he was the humanist chaplain at, uh, uh, where, where was, was he at? No, it was, um, USC at USC, yeah. uh, huge training in Christianity and religion. I have a master's degree, Bill, you have been doing this for so long. Um, 
just hours and hours and hours of, of reading and discussions and you've been studying text and it, it takes time. So if there's any, ever anything that either Bart said or Bill said, or that I said, um, that was inspiring, just a, just a reminder that, you know, that cost, it cost our time and it took work to get there. Yeah. And, uh, part of this fight in, in trying to make religion better and trying to do spirituality better is, is paying for the for the voices that you want elevated in the world, and so if we're yeah. one of them, we'd be really honored to have your um, recurring donation. Yeah, throw five bucks a month at us, and uh, be great. I think over the course of a year, you're going to realize just how much good uh, ideas, good um, ways in which we can show up in the world better are going to come out in this podcast. You and I have been talking about things we'll cover. You've mentioned people that we're going to interview in private emails between you and me, try to get those people lined up. And we're just super excited about the the next uh, coming months over the course of 2022 and excited to, to see what you guys get from this. And uh, we welcome your thoughts and ideas as well. Yeah. What's the email address for you, Britt, that people can send things to you? So for me, it's nnspirituality at, g, at gmail.com, or you can go to my website, which is no nonsense spirituality. And uh, that's where you can find me. And I also do um, some spiritual directing, some coaching, if you feel like um, that would be something that would be helpful to you. Uh, I have been getting some people who have listened to found me from the podcast and like, hey, I just I'm really in this tough space. I can't seem to get out of this whatever situation that you're in. Um, and it's the work that I really love doing. And so I, I have been meeting with a few people uh, that way. And so that's where you can find me. And I just want to do a big shout out to Anna, Anna Skelton. She's been commenting this whole time and she's making a donation and uh, just really appreciate you. Anna. just wanted to give you a shout out, Anna Skelton. Awesome. Perfect. Perfect. Everybody have a great week and uh, we'll see you next week on Tuesday, uh, 1 PM to talk about consent. Take it easy, everybody. Bye. This has been another Almost Awakened episode. Check us out at almostawakened.org, where you can check out past episodes, make a donation to keep this podcast running, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources shared in today's episode. For coaching opportunities or extra support, visit nonsensespirituality.com to meet with certified spiritual director Brittany Hartley.